<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Episode 7, Season 2, Just Science interviews Dr. John Kenny during the Cradle to Cane conference held in Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Kenny discusses ways to identify human trafficking in the field of dentistry and other industries that have organized groups to help combat human trafficking. This episode will describe many cases and examples where forensic odontologists are aiding in the justice system by using age estimation. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Funding for this season is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to this episode of Just Science. We're trying to elucidate some of the really interesting issues that cut across the forensic disciplines and keeping it to how science can make criminal justice better. Today we have Dr. John, or we're going to call him Jack Kenny. He has been in practice in Park Ridge, Illinois for 30 years, graduated from Loyola University Dental School in Chicago. I'm a graduate of Loyola in Maryland, but in physics. So we're going to have the dentist and the physicist talking today. He has uh, got enormous numbers of associations and distinctions in the area of pediatric dentistry in particular, and overall as a fellow of the American College of Dentists but he's also a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, which is why we have him here today. He's one of about 100 board-certified North American forensic dentists, and he has been active in the field for 30 years and twice elected the president of the American Board of Forensic Odontology, chairing their emerging forensic scientist competition each year. has been on, I believe, four different continents talking about his work and the work of forensic odontology and most recently uh, to uh, Nanjing's University Dental Hospital on the role of the dental team in detecting domestic violence and their medical school on forensic odontology and forensic anthropology. Welcome, Dr. Kenny. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's nice to be here, John. Did you get into forensic dentistry because you had an interest in forensics or these issues, or is this something that arose because you saw things in your practice? How did you get into the forensic science side of it? That's always a good story. I've got a bachelor's degree in marketing. And I changed <laughs> okay. careers, but during my first career, I was working for American Airlines in Chicago. One of my assignments for about six months was doing ground safety analysis. You know, things like a baggage loader running into an airplane or two tugs bumping into one another, things like that. So we could try and analyze where the problems were, what kind of retraining. But during that time, I was asked to look at the city's disaster manual for American Airlines. So I went through that. We ended up running the first live drill that had ever been done by American Airlines at O'Hare. This is back in about 1970. So we got through that, and I knew that if there was a, a major incident, there were you know deaths involved, coroner or the medical examiner, depending on the jurisdiction, took care of those issues. As an airline employee, we had certain responsibilities, and we wanted to continue to train our people about that, too, particularly on the supervisory level. And so when I decided to change careers, I got to dental school. I had no idea how important dentistry's role was in a mass fatality incident. The majority of identifications 
are done via dental means even today because the dental records are readily available. DNA still takes time. It costs money. You've got to have a family reference sample or a sample from that individual person. You know, fingerprints in a mass fatality incident, oftentimes, you know, the bodies are badly burned beyond recognition. So the only thing left is the hardest substance in the body, and that's dental tooth structure. And so I get to dental school in my freshman year. One of our professors had been doing the forensic dentistry for the Cook County Coroner's Office at the time. And among his other incidents, worked on the identifications on the uh, 737 that crashed at Midway that's famous because G. Gordon Liddy's wife and some of the Watergate cash was supposedly on the airplane. What and year was that? Mid-late 70s, uh, probably, by the time. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he had worked on that incident. And so it's like, you know, the light bulb went on. I thought, wow, this is something with my airline background. This could be really an interesting thing to do. And so the next year, there was a, a conference in Chicago, and they had a class on forensic dentistry. And I thought, oh, I'll go attend that. And after that, I uh, learned that the only major training program, and it was only a week long, was at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology at Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that'd be pretty cool to go there. And the dean of our dental school, he was a retired 06 bird colonel in the Army, but his responsibility had been continuing education for all the dentists in the uh, U.S. Army. And so I thought, well, I'll go talk to, the, to Dean Suriano about it. And we made an appointment. I sat down and talked to him. I said, well, Dr. Suriano, after I graduate, which would be the following year, this is in the summer of 76, I said, I'd really like to uh, go to, to AFIP and attend the course. And he said, well, what are you doing this October? And I said, well, I assume I'm working in the clinic getting my senior credits so I could graduate. He said, no. He picks up a telephone in his, uh, in his desk, still has a secure line to Washington. And the next thing I know, I'm enrolled in the course in October. As they say, the rest is history. I met a good friend and someone who's been my mentor. I met Dr. Lowell Levine there. He is now the director of the New York State Police BCI Scientific Unit, and he's been doing that for some time. He is also the senior consultant for the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency at both Hickam Air Force Base and Offutt Air Force Base. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing for the military right now. You asked the story. You got the story. That's a fantastic story. I mean, one of the threads that we do in the podcast here is that we try to encourage folks who are still developing their careers to follow two things. I mean, one is opportunity or serendipity, as it might be, but also interest. You've had a, an amazing career. You continue to have an amazing career, but it's mostly because you weren't afraid to say, gosh, well, why, why can't I be one of the people who go to AFIP to, to, to be one of the leading forensic dentists in the country? That kind of why not is very important, I think. As a pediatric dentist, I'm on staff at a teaching hospital, Lutheran General in Park Ridge, Illinois, and we have a pediatric medical residency, very prominent program, runs about 20 residents a year, and they rotate for a half a day through my office in Park Ridge to learn about pediatric dentistry, which is my clinical specialty. And one of the things I always talk to the people about is the fact that to these second-year pediatric students, and most of them have got a pretty good idea of what they want to go on and do, but I always tell them, don't be afraid. It may be one professor. It may be one patient. 
it may be a life experience that all of a sudden says, well, maybe I want to change my direction a little bit. Maybe not out of pediatrics, for example, but maybe they're deciding they want to do primary care pediatrics, and all of a sudden they come in with a kid who's very sick and with one particular problem, and they get into it and they say, wow, I think I can make a difference here. And so we try as an educator to do that. As a practicing pediatric dentist, I'm doing education all day long with the parents in my practice, with the kids, with the teenagers. And so I've never left being a teacher, if you will. And that's, I think, the thing that I enjoy the most is being out in front of uh, an audience, just similar to what we did with this current conference. Dr. Downs came to me a year ago in February and said, you know, I know you do a lot of work in uh, domestic violence. Do you think you could do something on human trafficking? And the next thing you know, I delve into it. And as I said during my presentation, it was like diving down a rabbit hole. And we'll go into that a little bit later. But you broaden your horizons a little bit. And the tie-in with dentistry is that we do dental aging sometimes on these victims to determine are they really above or below 18 because that depends on how they're going to be handled in the judicial system. Well, I want to start by apologizing in many ways because I think that you represent two areas that have not gotten nearly the attention that they deserve. One is forensic dentistry, and it's an important field. It's a field that has enormous implications across a variety of contexts. And the other is human trafficking, which I think is a modern tragedy. It's something that's kind of ignored or swept under the rug or whatever you want to call it. You know, a tragedy right in front of us that uh, we, we don't pay nearly enough attention to and we need to, need to do more about. From your presentation, I think you would agree on that point. Oh, there's no question about that. As a pediatric practitioner, sometimes when I see these cute little kids coming in at 9, 10, 11 years of age, I'm thinking, oh, my God, kids this young are being trafficked. Just like a number of years ago, I had to do a, a baby case at outlying uh, what we call a Collar County coroner's office. And it was a little redheaded kid about two years old who'd been abused and beaten to death, unfortunately. And there was a bite mark on the case, which was why I was called to examine the baby. And I get back to the office later that afternoon, and like my third patient is a little kid, same age, same sex, red hair. I had to get up and walk away from the chair and take about five minutes just to compose myself. It affects you, and we want to impart this knowledge. But the human trafficking thing, it's a huge problem. It's second only to drugs and the amount of money that's generated for the underworld, if you will. It covers all ages, races, sexes. There are innumerable problems. And to at least allow people to recognize what is going on. Even during my regular domestic violence lecture, I take about you know, 10 minutes out of that lecture just to cover domestic violence, to make people aware of what's going on in their own community. There are, even in the next town over and two towns over, there are two massage parlors. And after doing some digging, determined that at least one of them has had at least a singular run-in with local law enforcement. Things you don't even think about. There was a major trafficking sting that occurred, or arrest, part of a 17-state effort that occurred in part of it in the Chicago area. And the woman who was arrested is the, the madam, if you will, 
is living in Mount Prospect, the same town where this one massage parlor is located. It doesn't take much to figure out one and one equals two, and this was part of a national operation. Our local sheriff in Chicago, Sheriff Tom Dart, has been a, at the forefront of this with sting operations to get these kids out of trouble and also to discourage their clientele who are just as guilty because they are knowingly purchasing sex. And in many cases, they're knowingly purchasing sex from kids they should know are underage. There was just a person arrested, I believe he was in the Chicago area, and he was arrested at, at a motel for a five-year-old. It was a sting operation that had been generated through the Internet. But this man shows up with stuffed animals. I think there was some cough syrup maybe to help calm the child down, or some Benadryl. He had condoms, he had a sex toy, and he shows up knocking on the door at this motel and he gets arrested, which he should have been. But people right. don't realize what the hell is going on. It's not an issue that's just in Thailand. It's here in the United States oh, as no. well. It's not an urban issue. It's, it occurs across all types of places in America as well, right? Absolutely. It's interesting because... I was recently in a meeting in Australia and New Zealand, and getting kind of ready for this lecture, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to just go on Backpage.com and see what's happening here. And this particular website is well known for advertising sex for sale and in very graphic terms. I did this, and the next day, surprisingly, there was an article in the Auckland newspaper about sex trafficking. And I had seen a number of listings on the day that I had gone online to check it. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to see how much traffic this generates. And so a day later, two days later, I go back on the Internet to check for Auckland, Backpage.com, et cetera, et cetera. And the number of ads had nearly tripled because they were getting publicity. The thing is, in New Zealand and Australia, which I didn't know until I got kind of toward the end of this thing is, Prostitution is legal in Australia and New Zealand, but the advertisements were very graphic. A woman was even advertising herself because she needed to raise $1,300 to get a water treatment system in her home, and she said, spend the night with me or the day with me for $800. That's sure. how prevalent it is. But when I came back to the meeting here in Charleston, the night before I was doing my lecture, I thought, well, I'm just going to check and see, because in many communities, larger communities in particular, they've shut Backpage down, probably is by state law, so they cannot advertise for such services. But I checked for Charleston, and here was a list of young ladies available. No prices were mentioned, but it was pretty clear to anybody who read it what was being offered. And these women are moved from place to place, even in the Auckland paper, there was an ad, the copy obviously had not even been changed, but cut and pasted because she was saying available in suburban Brisbane. It's like, wait a minute, you know, that's the next country over. So this is all part of an organized operation. These girls are moved from place to place. They don't stay anywhere very long. Next question is, well, how are they found? How are they lured, if you will? And some of these are just young kids coming to the city for some adventure. And the vulnerable victims, if you will, these predators know what to look for. They will approach these kids and they will say, 
hey, do you need some directions? Do you need some help? It sounds very innocent to start. And the next thing you know, these kids are literally kidnapped and brought into a safe house, if you will, where they're locked up and then forced into prostitution. So these are things that just, for the average layperson, they haven't got a clue. Yeah, there's a real horror associated, of course, with prostitution of a minor, but I, it's a different thing, obviously. With these adults, there's a lack of understanding of, of how much victimization there is here. You show in your presentation that you provided that some of these women are actually tattooed with a crown and the name of their pimp, who's basically their owner. It's exactly. just like branding an animal or something. It's interesting because we had a different presentation on a different kind of child predator yesterday. And one of the techniques of this particular predator was not to brand the child, but to purchase jewelry with his name on a bracelet and on a necklace. So effectively, he was saying, you're mine. And it's, it's a little bit more insidious, but it's, and this was a adult preying on children who were 14, 15, 16 years of age. Yeah, this, the Mel Hall case, actually, we did a podcast on that one. Um, yeah, so that's exactly what I was talking about. I wasn't aware if you had done a podcast on the Mel Hall case or not, but that's exactly the case I'm talking about. And although the parents in that situation would not have agreed to have their kid tattooed, here's the next best thing. And the control. She was picked up from school, taken to the ball game. She could go home. That was about it. And she had to stay by her telephone. So he knew where she was at all times. You know, it's, it's a control thing. It's also a safety thing. He doesn't want her interacting and maybe saying something to somebody else about what's going on, too. There are some things we're trying to do as a country in this area. Talk to me and our listeners about the Blue Campaign uh, and what that is and how that works. Well, the Blue Campaign was developed by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And basically, that is a national and international program to identify human trafficking, both labor trafficking and sex trafficking, and to, on a federal level, because this often crosses state lines or international borders, best people to handle it are the feds. And so they have gone in and, through investigation, have come up and made some fairly significant arrests around the country, you know, breaking up labor trafficking, kids doing, you know, basically sweatshop labor. Uh, there was a story recently about a woman who was working in uh, Los Angeles, California area for, surprisingly, there was another Asian couple, and she was Asian, Filipino, I think, and she was forced to work for $2 a day. But the uh, Blue Campaign is just a national effort on the part of Immigration Customs Enforcement to identify and to basically find these kids and people, break the ring, and arrest the perpetrators and get them off the streets or deported back to their own country. Uh, unfortunately, just like other issues, when you're deporting people, a lot of times it's like a revolving door and they figure out a way to come back into the country and just start all over again or they'll work from overseas with their contacts that were not arrested here. So that's a good idea. Just to give you a couple of examples, 24 victims from Mexico freed after a joint U.S.-Mexican operation, 20 to 50 years for the traffickers. Exotic dancers in Detroit from Russia, Ukraine, and the Czech Republic were freed, sentences from probation to 14 years of age. Labor trafficking, 
all of these things is being handled by Department of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And so this is a really important avenue, and they're partnering. When I was talking about this, the 17 arrests nationwide, this was another coordinated campaign between local law enforcement and the uh, federal government to break these rings up and to free the people who are there and to put uh, perpetrators behind bars. Something that most people aren't even aware of is that major sporting events, the Super Bowl, the NBA championship, the NBA's all-star game, which just occurred in New Orleans, right alongside the Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting, World Series, FIFA World Cup, the Olympics, all of these events draw a lot of people, and they draw frequently a lot of males looking for some companionship or nighttime entertainment, if you will. And so the groups of these traffickers will move a large number of individuals into this country or around the country to meet this demand. It's not via Backpage.com if that's been shut down or Craigslist. They may be you know, slipping some money to doormen at some of the better hotels to say, hey, here's a card if somebody's looking for something. This is the cell number to call. You know, there's all kinds of ways this stuff goes on. Recently, too, there have been a couple of organizations, and uh, in particular one actor, Ashton Kutcher, who has been at the forefront of trying to break this chain of human trafficking. Another venue that's a frequent customer, if you will, for human trafficking in a locale is truck stops. And so there's an organization out there now called Truckers Against Trafficking that they have organized. They've got their own Facebook page, and they're trying to organize the over-the-road trucker to recognize this and to know how to report to try and save these kids. You know, it's interesting. You see a lot of the trucking companies, they have advertisements. You know, they want new drivers for their company. And I can't remember, it's one in particular. These guys are, the picture on the back of the truck is always a very clean-cut guy, home at night. I mean, it's family values. And most of these guys are very, very hardworking, you know, blue-collar people, and a lot of them are very Christian. And they are interested in doing the right thing. So now they have an avenue to help get these kids out of trouble. Another area, and it just was in the news right after Super Bowl 51, was a group of airline flight attendants that is organized to help combat human trafficking. And this is a very important thing. It's Airline Ambassadors is the name of the organization. And the same thing, they're training the flight attendants to recognize the signs of what might be a trafficked individual. In one case, right after they were right during the Super Bowl, there was a man who was traveling with a girl, obviously way too young to be his daughter, did not appear to be related. However, she was obviously traveling with him. She incurred, the flight attendant recognized this, and she was able to entice the young lady to go back to the washroom, where she put a little note on a post-it note saying, if you are not in the place where you're supposed to be, if you're being trafficked, let me know. She was able to do so. The flight attendant went to the pilot. The pilot contacted the ground. And guess what? When the plane landed, the police boarded the plane and arrested him. So we're trying 
to do what we can through other organizations, and my hat is off to both of them and to Ashton Kutcher for doing this, because this is a very, very prevalent problem in society. And it's not just, like you mentioned, Thailand. People don't realize there's such a thing as sex tourism to both the Far East and to Central America. Selling kids for sex, selling their own children for sex, or throwaway kids that are on the streets in these countries are the ones who are being used, neglected, murdered, raped, obviously. And this is the kind of thing that there needs to be something done to put a stop to it. And the more that we can do by awareness, the better off we are. Even in my dental presentations on domestic violence, I'm starting to talk about human trafficking because we want the word out there. Health professional to be aware. You know, I don't think it'd be very likely that they might see a human trafficking victim in their office, but it's possible. Maybe because of some trauma that was inflicted, maybe a, a woman who is being trafficked was attacked by a giant and she had her front teeth broken. That needs to get fixed. This is a commodity for the pimp buying them nice clothes or having their nails done, things like that. That's all to keep the commodity saleable. So if she had a broken front tooth, that's not going to make her as attractive to a trafficker as somebody with an attractive smile is going to be. So he may go out and he'll take her to a dentist and get that front tooth fixed. It's all you know different aspects and avenues. But education, education, education is what we need to do. And that's what I'm trying to do now and kind of branch out from my original areas of uh, interest. That's all excellent perspective and excellent presentation, which really goes deeply into the etiology, that how this works and, and how to recognize it from a law enforcement perspective. And I certainly appreciate that. I'd like to shift gears now a little bit over to the forensic dentistry aspects here. We alluded just now to some of that, which is that even the non-forensic dentist can play a role in trying to recognize these issues. But in forensic dentistry, there are very particular things you can do to try to help these cases move forward from an evidence perspective. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Sometimes, and it's being used occasionally to age these individuals. I'm doing a lot of dental aging for people in a sense being trafficked into the country. People are sometimes being smuggled into the country versus trafficked, they're crossing the borders illegally, and we have to determine if they're above or below the age of 18 to depend on how they're housed and what kind of a judicial hearing they get if they are requesting asylum. But in the case even of these young adults, males and females, who are being trafficked, it may not be possible. They may not have any documentation as to how old they really are. And again, the same thing. For example, in the state of Illinois and California, and I think there's one other state now, where they've decriminalized prostitution for the individuals under the age of 18 to keep them from having a police record, to have them better opportunity to break out of this cycle. So what we can do is we know historically and through research that the teeth develop in a pretty regular fashion. And third molars in particular were what we use to determine the age of an individual. There were studies done it in Texas and in Tennessee. Texas was Hispanic population. Tennessee was Caucasian and African-American population, where we had people within the dental school population where we knew what their correct date of birth was, taking panoramic x-rays on them, and then doing a comparison and 
that was where the, the original databases came from. There's a number of others that are out there right now, and more are coming as more individual countries do some of this research to give us a better range of age. Can I, can I ask a couple of questions about that? Because sure. a couple of questions come to mind. The most obvious one is, is there variation across demographic groups with respect to the molar development? There is some variation. Relatively, it's not a lot. And what U.S. government and U.S. law enforcement asks us to do is to give it our best estimate. It's interesting because wisdom tooth development, even in individuals that we know are coming from impoverished countries or having, not having a really good diet, for the most part is pretty close on. When we do these studies and when we do the analysis of a given subject who's brought, in my case, to my office and we take a panoramic x-ray, it's given to two standard deviations statistically. So this is the average age and there is a range of two standard deviations, plus or minus, so that law enforcement, they're the ones who make the determination or the judge, depending on the situation. So we're giving it our best estimate. And if we have an individual from an area of the world where we don't have good statistics, we just average everything. There's a program that was developed at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and it basically we take a look at the panoramic x-ray, we stage it using a standardized aging table developed by Dr. Demergian years ago. And based on this root development, we will look at the panoramic x-ray, we plug it into the program, and fortunately, it used to be we had to look up in tables and do the math ourselves. Now it's done in a canned program, which makes it very easy and gives us a very clean, concise report. And if the practitioner, the odontologist, sees something that, like an outlier, for example, their physical appearance, their physical size, the rest of their development is such that it looks like, hey, even though the third molars may be completely developed and says they're above 18, maybe it's more likely they're below. So we have a narrative section that we can add comments to, too, to try and help law enforcement make the correct determination. On the same token, one of my favorite cases was a young man who came in a number of years ago who claimed that he was 16 years and 10 months of age. And you look in his mouth and there's dental restorations, there's teeth that have been missing, there's teeth that have shifted. In my case in particular, dealing with pediatric adolescent populations up through college, I'm pretty familiar with what teeth should look like, what's an unusual pattern of missing teeth, and so forth. How long would it take for a shift of this magnitude to take place, for example, in the oral cavity. And so I can make an adjustment. But this kid came in and claimed he was 16 years, 10 months of age. When we did the analysis, it was obvious he was over 18. It was reported back to me when he was confronted at the facility that, in fact, he was over 18 and he was going to an adult detention facility. He fessed up to being uh, 22 and a half years of age. And you look at the guy, he's got beard growth. His facial features have matured. They're not the you know, young adolescent male features, they're more of an adult. And so these are all things that we're going to put together with our report to say, based on what we're seeing, yes, this falls in this category. And even for the odontologists that are doing this, and there's about five of us around the country, we try and give them the benefit of the doubt, too. I mean, if, if something looks like it's close, you know, their age is coming back as right on the border, and it looks to us based on their 
overall physical development, how they carry themselves, so forth, we can always make a comment and say, you know, even though this is at 18 years and one month of age, I think it's more likely that this person may be under the age of 18. You know, you have to account for outliers. There's, there's a certain amount of hard science, if you will, bench science, but it's still dealing with biology. And this is something that was brought out at the meeting yesterday a number of times. Forensic odontology. We're not bench sciences. We're life sciences. We're dealing with the human body, and the body has got variables no matter what. So there's not always the answer that if I put chemical X and chemical Y, you know, X amount into this test tube, I'm going to get this reaction. It's not repeatable like that because the human dentition, the human body is different. And this is part of the situation we're getting into with some of the negative situations with bite mark evidence because they're demanding that we be treated like a bench science, and we're not. White marks in particular are not a bench science. And so what is typically for two standard deviations? What does that represent? Uh, that may represent about two, two and a half years, plus or minus, depending on the population and depending on the you know sex of the individual. So these are things that we can look at, and it does give the hearing officer some latitude in what he does too. But again, if this is somebody who is clearly above the age of 18, it's going to show up in the, uh, in the statistics, too. You're looking at a number of variables, too, with respect to just the molars. So root formation and... Root formation, completion. Root completion is really the best way to describe it. Is the tip of the root completely open, looks like a blunderbuss on the end? Has it narrowed to be parallel, or has the tip of the root completely closed down and the periodontal ligament, which is the supporting, think of a, about the thickness of a rubber glove of soft tissue, maybe even finer than that, that the tooth rides in. It's kind of like a cushion. Well, if the root of the tooth is completely closed and that periodontal ligament is formed directly around the root and there is no area for further development, in other words, like a little bubble at the end of that root, then you know root formation is complete and this person has reached 18 years of age. So, and that's all we're asked, above or below 18. For individuals, for example, if we have less than two third molars that we can read, and sometimes because of mispositioning of the third molar through nature, impaction, we may not be able to see this root development, or they may be congenitally missing their third molars, or in one case we had somebody who it was apparent from the sockets had had third molars removed before they came into this country, we have another technique called a hand-wrist fill. And that's, again, something standardized, has been studied over a number of years and recorded against known chronological age of the patient. So we know that based on the development of the radius and the ulna, and a little bone called the pisiform bone that's on the medial surface of the thumb, has a person reached the age of 18 or not? If those bones and the radius and ulna are completely fused to the growth center, and the, the bone is basically one intact piece, there's no space between the distal surface of the bone and, and the medial aspect of the, the long bone itself, you know, again, that individual has reached maturity. Right. 
is it because they were beyond the cusp between whether they're before or after 18 or what usually justifies that? And the justification is if we are unable to make a third molar determination. I work for a social service agency that contracts with the Office of Refugee Resettlement and their criteria is that can we make a determination for the third molars? If we can't, then I have to advise the escorts that I, or you know, I make a note in the report too, I need to do a third molar study. So a separate authorization has to come in for that and they'll bring them back to the office and we'll do a hand wrist film. Depending on the jurisdictions, there are some of my colleagues who are routinely doing both at the same time. But again, you're dealing with a situation where you know, I need to get paid for my time too uh, and my efforts, and so they, they limit the number of dual exams primarily to if we can't do it on the third molars, then they'll come back a second visit and we'll do the hand wrist film. Your slides on both the uh, arm, wrist, uh, bones, and also on the third molar, uh, what the differences look like, are excellent. I uh, would never try to do interpretation myself, but after looking at, at the slides, I uh, actually had a thought, well, gosh, I could almost do this. There's a lot of little subtleties you have to look at, too. And just for clarification, too, for example, if I see some gross pathology, for example, somebody is in need of some dental attention in the immediate near future, that's noted in my report, too. And the, the escorts are given that information that, hey, this kid has got a tooth that's really bad. He needs to be taken to see, and they have a number of dentists that they contract with to do the dental treatment on these kids when they need some. The other interesting thing about dental treatment is I've had some of these individuals who come into this country that have had excellent dental work, and they're coming from third world countries, and you're wondering, how does that happen? Well, obviously, there's a lot of money behind moving these people into the United States, be they trafficked or be they people seeking refuge here. So it's just an, an interesting situation overall. And again, if we can be of service to the law enforcement community, social service community, uh, we certainly are happy to do so because it does provide a scientific basis for aging these individuals. And for example, as I mentioned, if you're under 18 in the state of Illinois and you're arrested and if the state has a question, is this person really above or below 18, at least we can give them a little bit better handle on their age by dental aging them, too. Yeah. So a lot of this, obviously, is looking at kind of pre-adjudication kinds of issues, right? Almost an administrative. Exactly. Now, in court, sometimes you would be called to testify. Is there particular language that you recommend or the field recommends? Because you're right. I mean, it's there's a scientific basis, but there's also a clinical aspect here where you need to understand the variations, need to be able to cast the variations in the appropriate light. I mean, how do you present the finding in such a way that it conveys to a finder of fact what the level of, of confidence is? Well, in all honesty, there's only been one case where I have actually been testified, and it was interesting because the uh, individual it was Hispanic, they had a family member here, and the parent wanted this person to be under the age of 18 so they could take custody of them, adopt them, whatever. 
And based on the evidence, I had to testify that, you know, based on what I'm seeing, this individual, in fact, is over the age of 18. And so I basically read from my report and let the trier of fact go from there. I have not had any other experience, I think, in the last five or ten years of doing this where I've actually had to testify. There may have been one a number of years before where we did an analysis on a male child who had been brought across state lines for purposes of prostitution, and the determination was, is this kid above or below 18? And in this child's case, again, he was found to be above 18, so they could not you know, charge the procurer, if you will, with transport of a minor across state lines for purposes of sex. So I really have not had a lot of experience, and I don't think we have not even in our most recent workshop, I don't think we even talked about that aspect of, you know, how do you testify in a case like this? I would basically answer the questions I was given. If I'm able to give an answer, I'll give it to the best of my ability. If I don't think that the question is correct or phrased properly, I may say, can you rephrase the question? You know, I don't want to be an advocate for one side or the other. Dr. Downs and several of his presentations yesterday and the day before made it very clear, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. Our job is to seek the truth. I'm not an advocate for prosecution or for the defense. My job is to take a look at the evidence as it's presented to me and to give my best opinion, and that's what it is. It's an opinion. Yeah, I can see exactly where you're coming from. I think that for most folks, and certainly for myself, when I look at things like age estimation, I can accept that you have a research basis for what you're doing, that you're applying it in a manner that you can even report a standard deviation, which is important. You, you have enough information to be able to say it, and against different populations. And that adds a, a confidence that I have with respect to making a decision. If you tell me somebody is 15 plus or minus two years, I can make a decision on that basis, right, if I need to. Right. Notice yeah. it's not dental aging, it's dental age estimation estimation. I think it's very, very important what you do and not only what you've raised about human trafficking, but all the things that you do in forensic dentistry. It's a very, very important field. I'm glad we were able to spend some time with you. Thank you very much for your time and all the work that you've put into not only your field, but also the presentations that you've been doing this week. Well, thank you very much, John. It's my pleasure to have been a, a guest on your program and to uh, try and pass on some information about this as a practicing forensic dentist, and most of my work right now is basically doing dental aging and reviewing the cases for the uh, uh, military ID lab. As I was telling brand new forensic pathologists who's in the course with us uh, this week, I said, you never know what's, what's going to come across, in her case, your table. I never know what's going to be on the telephone. Phone call says, hey, can you help us with this? And maybe it's something I can do, maybe it's something I can't. But again, given the longevity in the Academy of Forensic Sciences, I probably know somebody who might be even better qualified than I am to help them with the problem. We're all yep. in this together. You leave one thought. When I was a kid, I caddied at a, at a golf course, and there was a sign in the pro shop, and it said, ethics is the soul of the sport. And I remembered that, particularly on the forensic side, but in my practice side, too. Practice ethically. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. We all have bad days. But it's to do the best to our ability to do the right thing, to do it for the right reasons, 
and to, in our case, in forensic science, to try and serve the justice system as a person who is forthright, is honest, gives their best opinion, has the proper training to give that opinion, the proper certifications, and does not overstep what is within their abilities. And with right. that, I'll leave you. Present the just science. That's a wonderful way to leave it. Thank you very much again. Next week on Just Science, we interview Dr. Jan Dekinder about a case in Belgium involving fiber forensic evidence using one-to-one taping. The Forensic Technology Center of Excellence would like to announce the call for abstracts and workshops for their Impression, Pattern, and Trace Evidence Symposium. If you would like to share your research with the forensic community this January in Arlington, Virginia, please visit www.forensiccoe.org for all of the IPTI's details. Travel sponsorships are available for presenters. Abstracts are due by October 13th, and workshop submissions are due by October 18th. Please visit the FDCOE website at ForensicsCOE.org for more information about this podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.